Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about reconstructive surgery during breast cancer treatment with Dr. Tomer Avraham. Dr. Avraham is Assistant Professor of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Gore is a Professor of Internal Medicine and Hematology and Director of Hematologic Malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. Plastic surgery, I always uh, go back to the 1960s and Joan Rivers and Phyllis Diller talking about their facelifts. <laughs> so that's not me. Uh, no, that's not you. Huh? That's not me. I mean, I, listen, uh, we, we can do it all, but that's not, that's not what uh, gets us out of bed in the morning, gets us <laughs> excited. Uh, my focus is on uh, breast reconstruction, uh, particularly complex breast reconstruction, so uh, microvascular tissue transfer. Uh, so in layman's terms, using tissue from other parts of the body to reconstruct uh, the breast. We also do implant reconstruction but really my passion is uh, tissue-based reconstruction. That's a, that's a lot for somebody who thinks about plastics as being, like I say, this cosmetic stuff that we used to make fun of. And, and just uh, on, a, on a total side note, my mom you know, was always convinced that she was going to have facial work done. And mm -hmm. uh, it was like our, as her family, it was our mission to prevent that from happening. So anyway, okay, so that's, <laughs> I know this is not very interesting, but, you know, this, this is what it was like growing up in the 60s. Got it. Yeah, for those of us old enough to know that. Yes, yeah. sorry, I don't know. Yeah, you don't know that. That's good. <laughs> well, I'm glad we've moved beyond that, although I, I think in certain communities it's probably still. Uh, you know, cosmetic surgery p uh, plays a role, and, um, you know, whatever people feel that they need to do to make them feel themselves feel better about themselves is fine. Uh, sort of, I... I get more excited about uh, dealing with patients that have a reconstructive issue, patients that have serious medical issues. I take care of almost exclusively uh, women with breast cancer, and I find that very satisfying. Right. So, uh, yeah, so I, I, I totally get that, and I really appreciate it. Um, and again, as a non uh, as a non solid tumor oncologist and a non breast oncologist, uh, I'm familiar with the increasing um, utilization of uh, breast surgery for people who are at high risk of breast cancer, you know, people who have genetic abnormalities mm -hmm. and so on, and, and so much work has been done uh, to enable uh, cosmetic reconstruction even at the time of mastectomy. But it sounds like the kinds of things you're talking about, well, it may include that. That's, that's not really the main thing, huh? Uh, it, it is. We we uh, advocate for immediate reconstruction for pretty much all women. There's very few circumstances where we wouldn't recommend a woman to undergo a reconstruction at the time of her mastectomy. Um, and, you know, you, you, you said cosmetic reconstruction. Certainly the appearance of the breast is important because that's part of the function of the breast. But that's really not the end-all, be-all. And um, it's actually been a big lesson for me, uh, particularly as a male surgeon 
and dealing with the disease process that it primarily affects women. Yeah, I feel like I was about to be called yeah. out on my white maleness. Well, which no, is okay. I'm, I'm good. I'm we, good with we, that. we all have uh, we all have room to grow and room to learn. And I've learned a lot uh, from the women that I've taken care of. And uh, one of the first things I learned is that it doesn't matter what I think a breast uh, looks like or should sure. look like. It matters what the patient thinks. Yes, I, so, I agree with that. So when I, I, you know, when I talk to patients about the goals of reconstruction, I talk to them about three basic goals. And the two goals I tell them that we should be able to achieve right off the bat are that, um, number one, nobody uh, that doesn't know them and meets them in their clothing should know anything that happened. You know, so they they want to look normal in clothing, and they don't they want to look like themselves in clothing, uh, and not have this be a conversation starter. And I think that's completely reasonable. And the second goal is that they should be comfortable looking at themselves. They shouldn't have to avoid looking in the mirror on their way to the shower because they're horrified looking at themselves. Because for the past forty years they've had breasts, and now all of a sudden they don't. And the third goal takes some work, and that takes work on my part uh, to make things look as, as good as possible and also on their part because some of it is psychological, and that's being comfortable uh, with somebody else seeing their breasts and maybe somebody else touching their breasts and things like intimacy and sex and lifestyle issues. Gotcha. You know, I uh, again, not to go too far off the topic, but uh, in the last year or two, uh, there was a thing on the Internet about um, this woman um, who uh, had had uh, – um, double mastectomy and who uh, tattooed this magnificent right. bikini top. You, you may have seen it mm-hmm. as a way of uh, a sort of counter, like celebrate celebrate my body as it is. And, yeah. and and I'm not a tattoo guy, really. I don't tend to like tattoos. <laughs> okay. No, honestly, you know, it's just, you know, I'm old, whatever. But I have to say that it was very moving and beautiful, uh, her approach. And I'm not judging anybody. I just so, say, have you run into so, yeah, so the, a different kind of perspective? So, again, right? you know, we're, we're going back to a little bit of the spiel that I go through when I, I talk to patients about breast reconstruction. The first option in breast reconstruction for a mastectomy is no reconstruction. Nobody needs a breast to live. And if it's not important to the patient, then it's, then it's fine to live without a breast. And, you know, there are different ways that people can adorn themselves and cover the scars and sort of take ownership of being survivors. And, you know, we're just there to support them with whatever they're comfortable with. Gotcha. So you had mentioned, um, you know, this microvascular stuff and yeah. everything. And, I, yeah, yeah. and I'm thinking, I'm thinking oh, I, you know, I thought we were like, you know, making a pocket and putting in a, you know, yeah, a listen, inflatable I'm a pl- thing. I, I feel I, so ignorant here. I'm, uh, you know, I'm a... Educate a, me. So I'm a plastic surgeon, so I'm, uh, I'm used to... Uh, um, uh, oncologists uh, not taking me ignorant. no no not taking me too seriously <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but what we do uh, is actually a lot more technically complex than that. So yeah. again, without getting into minutia that's going to bore your audience, uh, it involves taking tissue with its blood supply because you can't just take a large chunk of tissue and move it around; it's going to die. So you take the tissue with its blood supply, you find blood vessels in the chest, uh, and you hook them up under a microscope. So it's pretty tedious surgery. It's pretty technically demanding surgery. It's not something that's offered everywhere or by every plastic surgeon. And as a matter of fact, uh, of the breast reconstructions that are done nationwide, 80 percent, 70 to 80 percent involve implants and only 20 to 30 percent involve using tissues, probably because of the complexity and the fact that not every plastic surgeon is willing to offer this. Um, so this involved additional training. Uh, you know, we were joking around before that it's a 10-year program, and that's how long it took me. Um, you know, and um, – uh, but, you know, it's my preferred 
method of reconstruction for most women. And when I see women, I tell them, you know, I have a bias towards tissue reconstruction, but it doesn't have to be their bias. There can be perfectly good reconstructions that evolve implants as well. I see. So you're actually replacing the implant with uh, the patient's own right. tissue grafted from somewhere else. Well, you know, so the majority of the women that we see by the nature of breast cancer are in their 40s, 50s, 60s. The majority of them have had children. So that means that the majority of them have some excess tissue in their lower abdomen, in their lower belly. Just the nature of the game. So we take that off and we utilize it just like you would for, you know, we take it off just like you would for a tummy tuck. Or very I was going to say you got a tummy tuck at the same uh, time. Yeah, it's very similar. And then we use the fat uh, and skin to replace uh, the filling of the breast and any skin that has been removed. So it's your own tissue. It doesn't involve an implant, which some women are really uncomfortable with the idea of a foreign body. Sure. It doesn't require upkeep. You know, implants are devices, and there's no such thing as a device that's going to last a lifetime. Uh, and it ages with you. It's your own tissue. It ages with you. It moves with you. Uh, and I think it's the state of the art in breast reconstruction. Wow. <coughs> Excuse me. Is there ever... Uh, a risk of the tissue not engrafting. And yeah, absolutely. Then? So, you know, anytime you do a technically complicated operation and you're hooking up blood vessels for any number of reasons, that could not work. Now, luckily, it's not common, and um, I'm going to knock on wood uh, for our audiences. I, I haven't had a lot of that, uh, certainly uh, not in the past year, but it can happen. And based on literature, when you look at all comers, it's going to happen about 1.5% of the time. So I tell women that that's a risk of 1 in 70. So not terribly common, but it can be devastating if it happens, right? We've done a big surgery. It didn't work. We made an incision somewhere in a part of your body where you didn't need surgery, and now we've got to come up with a plan B. So it's devastating for both the surgeon and the patient. But again, luckily, uh, I think we've gotten pretty good at it, and it doesn't come up too often. Mm -hmm. And is plan B then go to an implant, or it's, a, it's another uh, we, graft? Or you know, so, so part of plastic surgery is having plan B, C, and D in your pocket. Uh, so I have a, a a lot of options in the back pocket. We still can go to implants. There's tissues from other parts of the body. They're going without a reconstruction. Um, it, it, it's a pretty complex algorithm, you know. As, sure. as you can imagine, it took me 10 years to learn it. Uh, so I it, can't learn it in 10 minutes. No, huh? sorry. Uh, I, I I know you're you're big time uh, medical oncologist, but even even you guys, it's too much <laughs> for 10 minutes. I got it. Um, it's fascinating. So, and you can do this kind of. Um, you know, what sounds to me, uh, I would call it tissue grafting. I guess yeah, that, that's probably appropriate. it's a tissue transplant, right? basically. Yeah. Um, at the time of the mastectomy, does yeah, that not absolutely. make the the procedure? You don't do the mastectomy, right? That's, no, that's no. A, there's that's a, a, breast, a cancer surgeon. There's a breast surgical oncologist, a cancer surgeon who usually is specifically trained in that. Uh, and we do it at the same time. It does make the operation longer. But we again, like I said, we've gotten a lot of reps under our belt. And we've gotten pretty good. Time is not... Uh, terrible. Um, what kind of time are we talking about so for, for standard sides, mastectomy versus for one this? side? You know, four to five hours for the total operation. Well, that's, that's a lot. Um, it's not. Uh, actually, because a mastectomy with an implant reconstruction is probably going to take three hours. Wow. Um, and with uh, two sides, we're looking at six to eight hours. So it is a long operation. It's a long day. But it, it's actually, it's not long enough to have any significant impact on the patient. You know, patients always worry about how long an operation. Sounds like a lot of time to be under anesthesia, right? Uh, Sounds. It, yeah, but it doesn't actually make a difference. You know, anesthesia is very safe and um, it doesn't 
actually impact anything in terms of the outcome at, at those lengths. There are, you know, if you're starting to get to 10 to 12 hours, you, you are looking at some potential problems, but even those are low. I tell patients not to really worry about how long an operation takes because it doesn't impact their outcome for the most part. What really impacts things is how long are they going to be out of work, right? How long are they going to be in the hospital? And the length of the operation, that's a more of a big deal for the family members and loved ones that are outside, yeah, you know, stressed out about what's going on. But, um, you know, the in terms of the safety of a longer operation, there's no concerns. I also remember, and now we're going back to my surgical rotations as a medical student in, get this, 1980. Uh-huh. <laughs> People coming out. He, he, you don't even flinch. Say, yeah, well, yeah, what do you think? I was thinking 1950. Yeah. No, 1980. And people would come out of their mastectomies, and they'd have all these sorts of drains and stuff that yeah. as medical students we would have to tend to. Is is this the so same mas- nowadays? Yeah. Is it different with your kind of surgery? Yeah, so mastectomies, all mastectomies, whether reconstructed or otherwise, require drains. And drains... You know, a little bit of a you – know, we'll do a little surgical pun here. They suck. Um, Ooh. I know, I know. They, they're uncomfortable. We might get edited on that one, by uh, the way. Okay. <laughs> well, they're, they're uncomfortable. Bleep. Yeah. Uh, patients don't like them. But unfortunately, you need them. The body doesn't do – empty space, right? So empty spaces that develop over a long time, such as, you know, when we develop as embryos, fill up with fat. And empty spaces that develop as a result of injury, and surgery is a type of injury, tend to fill up with fluid. And if you leave fluid um, somewhere in a cavity, it's very likely to get infected. Right. So we have to put drains in, unfortunately. Um, and I would say that that's the most uncomfortable part of the operation for mm-hmm. the patient. But that's not different with your no, uh, with I don't, we grafting don't, versus... No, no, yeah, no. no. They, they have drains the regardless. Um, um, you know, I will say we've de-escalated things a little bit since you were a medical student. You know, I, I suspect when a patient had a bilateral mastectomy, when you were a medical student, they'd be in the hospital for three, four, five days. I was um, going to say a week. Yeah. Now there we, weren't many double mastectomies, by the way, yeah. in those days. So now, you know, this week I, I did um, two double mastectomies with reconstruction for tissue of the belly, and they both went home at day three. So, um I think we're, you know, we've sort of realized we can de-escalate things for patients. That's great. Uh, I was going to make a comment about we don't know how much suffering they're doing at home they used to do in the hospital. But uh, right now, we can talk about that afterwards. Uh, Right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the safety of breast reconstruction and different kinds of breast reconstruction with Dr. Tomer Avraham. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Tomer Avraham. We've been discussing breast reconstruction, particularly after 
cancer therapy or cancer surgery. Tomer, I made a, a little bit of a flip comment right before the break, which wasn't really fair, uh, which is to say that we as physicians and hospital systems are really proud that we can now get people out of the hospital every three days. But what, what do we know about the patient experience at home with such an early discharge, you know, with drains and pain medicine? Um, do, we, do we know that? I mean, so, it's great so there, that they're home, but are they so home there, comfortably? So there, there's a couple of, uh, of ways to address that. I, I think because I don't mean to be snarky. No, I think it's a valid point. Uh, so the biggest barrier to discharging patients earlier is pain control. Okay, so a patient can't go home if they are in so much pain that you need to give them narcotics, you know, through the vein. Uh, they have to be able to be home and take pills and be reasonably comfortable. And, you know, uh, some of the things that we've done uh, – to uh, improve the patient experience uh, are as follows. Number one, when we do our tissue transfer now, we very rarely uh, take muscle with us, and that was a big contributor to the pain. Huh. Now, now we dissect tiny little blood vessels through the muscle, and we leave, you know, 95% of the time, we're leaving the entire muscle behind. So that takes away a lot of the pain. Second of all, there's a medication that's been developed uh, uh, that is... Uh, Again, technical term, liposomal bupivacaine, which is a long-lasting local anesthetic. So it can last up to 72 hours. Mm -hmm. So we inject that uh, using an ultrasound during the surgery right on top of the nerves that supply the belly. So basically the belly— It's like a nerve block kind of thing. It's a nerve block, exactly. And the belly is largely numb for 72 hours, which gets you through— the, the worst of it. The worst of it. Uh, and patients are really not complaining about a lot of pain. Second of all, the drains. Yeah, the drains can be intimidating. And, you know, I'm a plastic surgeon, so I'm not scared of drains. But most of our patients are not doctors, and they can be. So we arrange a nurse that can come to the home and see them once a day, take a look, reassure that, that everything is fine. Um, and then our patients have done really, really well. Um, and generally speaking, uh, patients are more comfortable at home. It's their environment. It's their food, it's their bed, um, and I, I, I haven't had any complaints. Hmm. Well, you sold me on that one. Um, Good. You have, yeah. <laughs> and um, I wanted to ask you about uh, whether there's different cosmetic outcomes uh, based on the tissue transfer versus implants. Yeah. So really the cosmetic outcome is very multifactorial. Um, and I really caution patients about that a lot when they talk about looking at before and after pictures, which are a big thing in plastic surgery. The problem is when you're looking at before and after pictures, number one, somebody's showing you their best results. Num- sure. Number two, those those people you're being shown aren't you. They may not have your body type. They may not have your disease. They may not require the treatment that you can. So it's it's really multifactorial. Again, in my opinion, I think tissue reconstruction is more natural looking and natural feeling. Um, when you look at implants for breast reconstruction, it's not the same as implants for cosmetic surgery for breast augmentation. When, you do, when somebody wants their breast larger and they have a breast implant placed, that's placed under the breast. And it really just presents the breast. It pushes it forward. Hmm. And so the first thing that the eye or the hand encounters is a breast. Here, the implant is essentially sitting under skin. So it's fairly obvious that it's more of a breast 
uh, mound than a breast per se. So it's not always the most natural looking or feeling reconstruction. Hmm. What about nipple reconstruction? So nipple reconstruction is, so there's a couple things. Number one, a lot of patients are now candidates for nipple sparing mastectomy or nipple conserving mastectomy where they don't need a nipple reconstruction. They can keep their nipple. Patients that are not can have a nipple reconstruction. There's a couple ways to approach that. Uh, one of them is surgical. We do a small operation under local anesthesia, which is, again, for lack of a better term, uh, like skin origami. And you make a little bump, uh, and then you get a tattoo around it, which is, which gives you the areola. And the areola is the colored portion around the nipple. The other option is to just get tattoos uh, that uh, that really um, can really fool the eye into looking like a nipple. And there's many tattoo artists uh, that do this, and there's actually a few out there that specialize in this. Wow. Um, and again, not to, not to promote anybody, but there's been uh, one that had a write-up in the New York Times and now has like an eight-month waiting list uh, to get that done. Now, the downside to that is that if you're going to a tattoo artist, it's not going to be covered by insurance. You pay out of pocket. Uh, but for many patients, it's not an you know overly onerous expense, and it's a very good option. In the surgical approach, I assume that this is done at a different date? This is yeah, so usually time. you want things uh, a few months apart. You really want things to settle out and be where they're going to be. Uh, from an aesthetic point of view, the nipple sort of centers the breast when you're looking at the, nip at the breast. So sure. you don't want things moving around once you place a nipple. So you really want things to show you where they're going to end up before you do a nipple reading. Do you take pictures of the uh, patient's pre-surgical breasts to know what she yeah. looks like and what you're going to try to So we do a, we, we definitely take pictures. We take anonymous pictures of all of our patients. Um, there's no um, and there's no face in it and there's no uh, identifying marks even if they have a unique tattoo I you know I black that out and things like that. Um, and that's for a couple reasons. Number 1 it's for uh, planning. So we can sort of plan the operation in right. our head. Second of all, it's for academic purposes. You know, um, I, I work in an academic institution, and we try to publish our results periodically, and it's good to have uh, uh, the uh, photos as a form of data. And the third reason is that it's sort of an internal quality control because I go back and I look and I say to myself, what it, how am I doing? What would I do different? Um, is this turning out the way it should be? Um, and I think that's important also. You know, I um, I had some uh, surgery done uh, for a breathing issue in my nose, and uh, this is now going on eight, ten years ago, I'm guessing, and, and I have an area of numbness still um, yeah. under my nose, and it's, it's, it's kind of curious to me and, and kind of interesting um, because – one doesn't go around touching one's bottom of the nose too often, right? Right. Uh, and now, speaking of the breast as an erogenous zone for many people, yeah. uh, I'm wondering, uh, and of course, I've, there's got to be so much psychological complexity since it's been the site of disease and how a woman might feel about that as a sexual part of her body or part of her sexual expression. So, I, I mean, I'm sure there's no one-size-fits-all here at all, but... Uh, you know, what do you hear from women uh, for whom, you know, the breasts have been important to their partner and to themselves as part of their sexual play? So I, I think that's an excellent question. And cessation specifically 
is an excellent issue. It's and it's under addressed, um, and I, and that's why I make a point of addressing it with every single patient. And really, the breast oncologist and the breast surgical oncologist should be addressing it as well. And I think uh, I think uh, there's more awareness. We're doing a better job. So here's the deal: the uh, majority of the nerves that give sensation to the nipple and to the skin of the breast run through the breast. So that means, by definition, they're removed during a mastectomy. So initially, there is no sensation, erogenous or otherwise, to the breast skin or to the nipple. Some sensation can come back with time. It's really highly unpredictable, and I don't think it's reasonable to expect it to be um, erogenous sensation. And it's you know, there are some people out there that are looking at some things to try to improve it, but the reality is that at this point it's not truly modifiable. There's really not much that I can do about it. But I do think it's a bad hit to find out about it without expecting without, it, without knowing about it. I think that's unreasonable. And the you know the other part of it is for women uh, who are debating between breast conservation, so a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, if their nipple sensation is important to them in their lifestyle, then, you know, when they're making that decision, certainly that would push towards a lumpectomy. So with a lumpectomy, depending on, again, where the yeah. cancer is... There's a much higher chance that nipple sensation will be preserved. Do you ever need to do reconstruction in the context of a lumpectomy? Uh, often. Uh, we do it a some lot. Of them, some of them are big lumps, right. right? So, you know, again, body doesn't do empty spaces very well, and particularly because women that have lumpectomy will almost invariably require radiation, it can really deform the breast. And there's a bunch of things that we can do, either with implants or with transferring tissue, or what we do for very large-breasted women or women that have sagging after childbirth, uh, we make the same incisions that we would for breast reduction or breast lift, and we do the lumpectomy through that. And then we do a breast reduction or lift on the other side to make them symmetrical. And it's, in many ways, a win-win for them. And is this also a tag team with a breast oncologist? Yeah, the breast oncologist does the lumpectomy and then you incisions. Fix it up. Yeah, we design incisions for them that when they're done, I can just turn it into a breast reduction. Are there certain surgeons that you tend to work with, like as a team? Or I mean, I'm sure there's only so many that go around in the place that you work. But. Yeah, so you know, I work with uh, several of our uh, breast surgeons mm -hmm. that uh, you've got a working surgeon. relationship. Yeah, we have a working relationship. Yeah, it, it, and that's important too. When you're selecting so, yeah. surgeons, find somebody, find people that work as as a team, uh, they can communicate better, uh, set expectations better, and come up with a multidisciplinary plan for you. So could you fill us in on sort of what the recent recall is about? I, I yeah. know a few years ago there were concerns about silicone implants, as I recall, yeah. and people thought they were causing autoimmune diseases, and I, I, I remember so that being kind of implant questionable. Thing, so the silicone implant thing, I forget what year it started. It was either 1990 or 1992. See, and I'm showing my age. And it started, felt like it was five years ago. <laughs> it started with three women that came on a show with Connie Chung and complained, and it led to a lot of hysteria, and uh, the FDA banned silicone implants, and a uh, company went out of business, and billions of dollars were lost. Well, it, it wasn't really ever shown medically, as I recall, that there was any association between the silicone and either lymphoma, I think was one of the accusations, yeah. and lupus and things like so that. So all of that turned out not to be false. And, it was false. Yeah, and uh, we really sort of there was a, an unnecessary hysteria. The issue we're dealing with here is different. So there are two types of implants of, of – uh, there's actually – there's multiple types of implants. Let me take that back. But the two types we're talking about are either smooth or textured. So they're rough on the outside. And for whatever reasons, reasons that are not 100 percent clear uh, – it's the textured implants are associated with a type of lymphoma. Uh, now, this lymphoma is rare, 
but not as rare as we thought. You know, when I was training, I was taught that it was one in a half a million patients and not to really worry about it. And then it was one in 100,000 patients. And then it was one in 50,000 patients. And now we're hearing that it may be one in 10,000 patients. So that's concerning to me because it, that, that shows a time course to me. And I think it's just a matter of time as more and more patients are diagnosed, your incidence is going to increase. So I, I personally became worried about this before the FDA did, and I stopped using these implants three or four years ago. Uh, and where I work, we've uh, banned these implants several months before the FDA issue came out. Now, the FDA recalled implants from one specific manufacturer. Now, uh, the other manufacturers are sort of touting, saying, you know, it's only from this uh, one manufacturer, but I can't really see a scientifically feasible way why their textured implants would be any less dangerous. And so I think um, really we should be avoiding these implants at this time. Now, the the question is, what do women that already have these implants yeah. do? And it's a tough question because I don't think that we have an absolute reason to take them out. And the FDA is not recommending that they absolutely take out. Again, this my personal feeling, and this is not necessarily database, if this was my loved one, I would probably want that implant out sooner rather than later. It's not an emergency. Mm. Uh, it doesn't have to be done tomorrow, but I would not want them uh, living risk. with that with that risk. And, you know, and women that have had breast cancer, just the idea of them having to worry about another cancer is sort of, you know, I, I'm here to take care of women that have been, that are getting cured of cancer, not to cause cancer. Uh, that's my feeling about it. I mean, I guess the counter argument would be that you don't know whether the damage, which is going to lead to lymphoma, yeah. might have already been done and taking it out may have nothing to do with it. And and to a degree, the damage has been done. And we know that women that have had the textured implants have a persistent risk going forward. But you're, you're uh, remediating that risk. You're mitigating that risk by removing uh, the implant. Now, the good news about this lymphoma is that it's eminently treatable for the most part. Uh, most patients are treated just by removal of their implants and don't even require chemotherapy. Wow. Having said that, there, you know, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pontificate to you about lymphoma because you're a lymphoma expert. But having said that, there are patients that have had to have chemotherapy, and there have been patients that have died of their disease. So it's it's a real thing. Dr. Tomer Avraham is Assistant Professor of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.